Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. Tonight, my very special guest is noted poet, Arch Nasani. The title of her latest book is Another Nirvana. Archna, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. I'm so honored that you invited me to um, share my thoughts on poetry. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. I'm glad you're here, too. This is more than a pleasure. Let's begin our journey together, our poetic journey. Let me start by asking you this question. To you, what is poetry? Ah, okay. Uh, poetry is 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 um, poetry to me is I would say an event, um, an event in my consciousness. Um, it is it is you know a vehicle for my soul's evolution, <laughs> really at the deepest <laughs> level, and and I think that. At yeah, at the deepest level, it is vision and prophecy expressed through language. And that's at the deepest level. You know, at a more superficial level, I would say that, you know, it is when I'm seeking to express myself and tra- transform myself through language. But it's all these things, Michael. Wow. So at the deepest level... What did you say? Because it was so profound that I'm still trying to, to grapple with it. What did you say it is at the deepest level? Um, I, I felt at the deepest level, it's a, it's, a, it's a vehicle for my soul's evolution. So I feel that poetry, you know, has been some kind of an inner compulsion with me since my childhood and especially teenage. It's something uh-huh. which is compelling my soul to evolve, you know, through language. Um, you know, I would explain it this way because I'm not a prolific writer. I haven't written much, but so whatever I write, I feel that I'm being compelled from within on a spiritual yes. level to express myself. Mm. Wow. Well, why do you think poetry is important in general? Okay. Um I would say poetry is important in general because self-expression and creativity are important. Mm. Um, and, but I think that in contrast to fiction and nonfiction, poetry is um, closer to the human heart, the spirit, and is able to, um, you know, speak like truth to power. Is 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 able to is able to challenge the status quo. Um, it is, I think, you know, revolutionary in nature, or rather it has revolutionary potential. So I think it's, it's, it's important. All right, um, I agree. One, mm, all right, all right. As you think about your body of work, 
what are some of the predominant themes? What do you write about? Ah, uh, now that's a tough one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. Let me see. Well, um, my poetry is inner directed, so I'd say you know one of the themes is inner exploration of my femininity. Um, also, feminist rewriting of myths, and um, I would say you know mystical longings for union with the divine, because I've written a bunch of poems which are mystical in nature. Um, also, my relationship to the divine feminine, and that's why you will find a lot of Hindu goddesses like Kali and Durga in my poetry. Um, and also, I'd say another theme is a sense of displacement, you know, because of my going back and forth between India and Canada. So I think these are some of the themes. Mm, all right, very nice. Please share a poem. Okay. So this poem is, you know, I think would demonstrate what I said about um, poetry as the vehicle of my spiritual evolution. So this poem brought about a transformation in me and also was the result of a deep transformation. Um, so here it goes. First Fire, which is also the title of my first book of poems. First Fire. Mother, for the first time in 20 years, I spoke your language and made it mine. But that was not the only miracle. Do you know it was at Kali Ghat that I finally found myself? I drew closer to you as the chanting rose and then knew it was not just the hymn, but the you that was older than the earth. We were not two, but three women locked in one embrace. You, I, Kali. I shrank into her bleeding toe and came back to life. My body that lay scattered in shrines was suddenly yoked by longing. I don't know who honored whose right. All I know is this, that mother, you have lived in me like a child. Now you rise in me like the earth's first fire. Thank you. Wow. That was exquisite. Um, Michael, I just wanted to um, I wanted to share that this poem was written in Toronto in 1994, but oh, wow. I transposed it. Yeah, I transposed it in my mind to a shrine of Goddess Kali in a place called Calcutta in India, because yes. I I experienced a kind of spiritual awakening. So I try to capture that moment of spiritual awakening. So therefore. I my mind went to that shrine, and I um, you know I call myself like the daughter of Kali because she lives in me. So I'm, you know, she's the mother, and therefore, but she's born out of me like a child. So. What exactly is a spiritual awakening in your writing? How does that how does that look? The spiritual awakening. What comes out of you? 
in your writing? Um, what came out in 1994-95 was the divine feminine. Um, I became aware that I am truly complete in myself and and that I am directly connected, that there's a direct connection between me and the divine. And not only that, that I am the about that I am the embodiment of, you know, um, divinity. And as as in the in Hinduism, you the concept of Shakti. So I became the goddess. I in in becoming the goddess and embodying her, I discovered who I truly am. And I think that was my spiritual awakening. So and hence I started using. Um, you know, goddess imagery, which I never did before, because prior okay. to this, I was extremely westernized. So I think the shift, the, uh, after my spiritual awakening, you see uh, the presence of the divine feminine, and especially, you know, goddess, uh, you know, imagery associated with the goddess. Mm. Wow. When you think about writing a poem, how does it begin for you with an idea, an image, or a form? Mm-hmm. Michael, I would say that it begins as something musical, like a musical rumbling in my mind, which then finds words. So, yeah, mostly begins like that. Sometimes it begins with an image a feeling of inspiration and everything coming together, you know, the feeling of coherence when sound, word, this musicality within an image come together and cohere. Wow. Musical rumbling in your mind. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> let's <laughs> let's go back in time for a minute, all right? Mm-hmm. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Uh, could you repeat that, please, Michael? Yes. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? Mm-hmm. Okay, I think that would be when, as a child, I would accompany my father to, you know, uh, something called Mushera. It's in the, you know, this is a tradition of the Ghazals, where um, where poets sit on stage and recite their poetry, and there's an interaction between the audience and the poet. So the audience even has you know, the right to ask the poet, hey, could you repeat that? And then the poet will repeat it. It's it's a very intimate setting. So I think I realize the power of poetry then. Well, it reminds me of being similar to this show where I ask you, a, a poet who joins me, to repeat a poem because I want to really take it in. I think that's so important. I like that program. Please share another poem mm-hmm. for us. Okay. I will share um, a recent poem called Yashodhara, 
Yashodra is the wife of Buddha. So, you know, the world, the, the whole world knows about Buddha and, you know, his enlightenment, but his wife has been neglected by history, according to me. Um, it is very... It is not known that she too achieved enlightenment, and I don't mean that figuratively. She actually did achieve nirvana, so this is uh, about her. Yashodhara, the world has forgotten you and remembers only the man who walked out on you and Rahul in the middle of the night to pursue his enlightenment. Sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, leaving you, his child, his home. He saw the light and achieved nirvana. And so, we see the light as apart from the world and man overcoming woman to walk the path in search of truth, as if woman were the source of untruth, distraction, temptation, illusion. Siddhartha's thousand-petaled lotus bloomed atop his sahasrat, connecting him to the universe, while you stayed put like a solitary lotus in the mud and mortar of home, roasting in the fire of your wifely longing for a man who was destined to be your divine counterpart, carrying on unflinchingly your mandate that made motherhood a divine path through which you too finally achieved nirvana, a nirvana no one talks about. Buddham sharanam gachami. I take refuge in you, Buddha. But I take refuge in you too, Yashodhara. Yashodharam sharanam gachami. Thank you. Wow. You know, the word nirvana is so powerful, extremely powerful, and it means so much, so many things. Your book, Another Nirvana, how did that come about? What inspired it? Um, I think, um, first I must clarify that, you know, I wrote poems over a period of, you know, a decade or 15 years, and when I had enough, I, mm. I, you know, compiled them and came up with the title, Another Nirvana. The title takes after the signature poem in the collection. But I think it explains the overall, you know, thrust of the, the collection because I've always been a spiritual seeker. And after my experience of spiritual awakening, I think that I lost, you know, I lost that, um, I lost my path, I lost my way, I would say, and I'm still yearning for that, <laughs> another nirvana. <laughs> yes, I, I understand. I understand. Yeah. We, could, mm-hmm. we could be twins. So I understand. <laughs> I understand exactly what you say. <laughs> oh, okay. wow. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, Michael. Um, I, you know, I would love to hear more about how you resonate with this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll share this very quickly mm-hmm. and briefly. I've been on a spiritual journey to understand the nature of suffering. What does it mean to suffer? 
and I looked at Buddhism, I looked at Christian thought, what is suffering all about? And I came to the decision, or had this realization, I shared this with Don Krieger recently, that Mm -hmm. if you can understand that suffering is going to be part of your existence in some way, shape, or form, either big or small, large or small, if you can understand that and accept that, then there's a possibility of finding peace. That's what I think, anyway. Oh, oh, Michael, that is so wonderful. We are indeed spiritual twins because I, too, have been preoccupied with the nature of human suffering and as a way to alleviate. And that's why I I am a meditator. Oh, oh, mm. oh that, 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 really, that really resonated with me. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, hey, thank you for bringing it up. See, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. You know, it sounds like your work is also about emotion. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about emotion. Do you think that someone can be called a poet if they don't feel strong emotions? Michael, I totally agree with that. I think that there has to be, um, uh, you know, without an experience of um strong emotion, um, you know, without a passionate nature, uh, if, you, if, if you're not driven, that, that, that kind of a person, I think, cannot be a poet. Um, I think outside of this, perhaps someone who aspires to be a poet can write poetry, but I think, I mean, I agree with you. I think strong emotion mm-hmm. um, is a requirement, if I may put it that way. <laughs> All right, all right, all right, all yeah. right. Um, and, mm-hmm. No, please continue. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, um, I'm, I'm trying to understand, you know, but where your question is coming from. So, so, so I'm sorry. So my answer is yes. I'd say yes. Uh, poets. My understanding is they experience things deeply, strongly, passionately. Um, and without that, I think the poetry just wouldn't have that kind of momentum. Mm. Mm-hmm. I like that. All right. Mm-hmm. Do you think that a poem is letting your guard down or building a wall? Uh, letting letting my guard down for sure, because I reveal myself. I am, um, you know, naked before the world so to speak, Um, uh, you know, I give off myself, I give myself away, I surrender, I show who I am, and I am truly myself uh, in my poetry. All right, share another poem. Now, this poem is called When You Played Your Flute. This is a kind of love poem, but it also reflects my deep abiding love and reverence for Tibet and for Tibet as a country, as a nation, for Tibetan civilization and for Tibetan Buddhism. When you played your flute, the prison of my being opened. I walked through parting doors upon doors of clouds made of heaven. When you played your flute, my heart was the pagoda flower that bloomed on the highest plateau. When you played your flute, 
the air in the third floor of Dripung Losling's side, thinking of our paths that almost crossed. When you played your flute, I remembered how our hero souls were sent out of Bardo land on separate arduous journeys to deserve the gift of our mating. When you played your flute, I saw Tibet through your eyes and wondered, could I be your Tibet? Thank you. Wow. Could I be your Tibet? (laughs) I like it. You know, sometimes, for many, love hurts. And my question is, does it hurt you to write poetry? If not, why not? Michael, yes, it hurts. Um, I think life hurts and love hurts, and the result is poetry. Mm-hmm. Now, could you potentially write a love poem that says what you don't want to hear? This is so you're asking me, could I <laughs> uh, write a poem? No, actually, um, I'm going to change that. Can you mm-hmm. love a poem that says what you don't want to hear? Yes, I can, because it would remind me of, um, you know, the how how love can hurt, you know, how, mm. um, you know, how painful love can be, because it is fleeting, because it would remind me of, you know, the fleeting nature of love. It's, it's you know, there's going to be a high, a peak, and then there'll be, there's, there's going to be a decline. Mm. You know, as you think about poetry, and we just, just stick with this theme of hurt just a little bit more, and then we can move on. Are you willing to be hurt by the poetry of others? If not, why not? And that's the first time I've ever asked this question, so you're the one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. work with me. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I am, and I have been. You know, especially mystical poems. You know, St. Francis mm-hmm. of Assisi, you know, Mirabai, um, you know, Lalishwari, uh, Kabir, the, the Bhakti poets of, of, of uh, the, the Bhakti saint poets of India, their poetry hurts, um, you know, and, 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 and a lot of uh, poetry written by romantic poets of the 19th century, you know, contemporary poets, yes, it hurts. Um, some poems of, by Sylvia Plath, for example, they hurt. Wow. You know, I'm just, I'm floored. I'm learning so much. And hopefully you don't feel as if I'm putting you on the spot too much. But I just, I just want to learn. I want to, I'm going to say sit at your feet and pick up knowledge. I just, I'm just that thrilled to have you with me. It's, it's my pleasure, Michael, and my, I'm honored you know, to right. be able to share of myself in this way. Yes. Well, wonderful. Let's take a brief break, and we'll be right back. <laughs> sure. See you soon. 
are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Arch Nassani, the incredible Arch Nassani. Question for you. All great writers have great writing influence, and you've kind of talked about influences. Who are some of yours specifically, and what makes them great in your eyes? You, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, Michael. You're you're right, Michael. I did talk about a few influences, but I'll be honest. I have to jog my memory when I think of influences, um, because somehow I've lived. You know, I lived a kind of solitary life um, at least till mm-hmm. my mid twenties, and um, you know that's when I realized that I'm you know of a mystical bent of mind. So I would say that the deepest influences have been the mystical poets of, of India. You know, I read them in comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, you know, there's a comic books called Amar Chitrakatha. So that might have been an influence. Um, but I have come to believe that even that was not an influence. It was my innate nature which sought out those stories. So it was reciprocal. You know, so that that is one major influence. The second would be, um, like I said, the Ghazal tradition, the Sufi and Ghazal tradition, which again comes from my father. Um, then it would be certain Western poets like Sylvia Plath, um, you know, Emily Bronte. Uh, but honestly, Michael, I see them as kindred souls rather than influences. I was drawn to them because I found myself in them. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. I just enjoy listening to you. <laughs> I really do. Let me calm down. I'm the host. But I enjoy <laughs> listening to you. I really do. And I want to ask this question. <laughs> What is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Because you speak with such conviction, such understanding, such wisdom. Is there a relationship between the two? Um, I would say that my speaking voice brings my written voice to life and Mm. completes it. It completes it. It gives it direction and meaning. It gives it a soul. Um, I I think without the speaking voice, poetry is dead. Poetry is meant to be, poetry is meant to be spoken, uh, shouted, and sung. You know, from from the top of the mountain. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Wow, let me let you finish, please. <laughs> I'm so happy. But, <laughs> you know, that statement that you just made about poetry being dead, that's a very strong statement. Back it up. How can you say something like that, Arshna? Um, because, okay, so to back it up, I would say if you look at the poetic traditions of all cultures and civilizations, um, poetry was sung, so, sung to music. It was, it was also associated with the sacred, you know, sacred rituals, which was said in mm-hmm. meter and rhyme, and it was sung. It was memorized and sung by the priest, you know, the priestly class. 
So it's only later on that the, you know, when the written word was invented that it was inscribed onto tablets and then later paper. So, so I think poetry is in, innately, it's, it's, it's related to music, rhythm, and song, and it's meant to be sung. When you think about poetry, again, so much is happening in the world. And I ask this question every week of every guest. So much is happening, the good, the bad, the indifferent. What do you view as being the role of a poet in modern-day society? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that, you know, the role of a poet in modern-day society is um, – you know, it's it's to show us by example the the transformative power of poetry, um, and someone who is also able to reveal poetry as a vehicle of truth. And by mm. truth, I mean, you know, the naked raw truth. For for example, poetry as being able to challenge all forms of oppression. Um, and, and also, I think that the modern-day poet should be able to show poetry as an, an enabler of empathy. You know that. Yeah, so I would say that this is, you know, these are a couple of things that a poet these days is, um, you know, should be doing. All right. Please share mm-hmm. another poem. Okay, um, so this poem is called My Immaculate Conception, pun intended. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This poem, you know, envisions my fictional daughter, um, and it's, it's, it's one of my favorite poems, so here it goes. I have a child. She is the aggregate of all the men I have loved and the dross of my flesh of my flesh. In that brooding space which yields to everything, she was born. Like a ripe red rose, she incarnated from the dross of my flesh. She has been born and has died a thousand times. Tonight, she is alive, doing what she always does, haunting my house and breaking my sleep and eating her death to incarnate endlessly. This is how she plays with me. Tonight, she is alive. She stands in front of the mirror, trying on faces for tonight's play. She wears all my faces, but is not mine. She is not her father's. Her fading fathers stare back at her baffled, struggle to recognize her. Thank you. Wow. Did you ever share that particular piece at a a Cultivating Voices event? Have you shared that one? I might have. I I think I might have. There's there's one of your poems. 
It's about birth. I can't remember, but it was the very first poem I ever heard you share. And it just touched me so much. It was about not being a mother. It was, maybe that was it, but it stuck with me, just the, the theme of it. I, I, I've got to process some more, but I love that. I can see why it's one of your favorites. I can see that. Arshna, if you were a poet during a different era, when, where would you want to exist? If I was a poet from a different era, I would like to exist in, um, I think, 13th or 14th century. Uh, All right. You know, yeah, during the time, you know, when you had the tradition of, you know, mystical poets, the Bhakti saints of India and the Sufi poets. Yeah, that's my mm-hmm. era. Mm-hmm. What about that era? What would you be doing? I mean, the reason I'm asking these questions, when I invite people on my show with an international background, and yours is, I feel like it opens up new vistas for understanding, to understand another person's unique lived experience. And to me, that's what you're bringing tonight. Your unique lived experience is wonderful. So if you were doing that era, a poet doing that era, what would you be doing? What kind of poems would you be writing, you think? Um, Michael, I think what I would be doing is writing, singing rather, you know, like just walking the streets with a musical instrument and singing my poems, my compositions addressed to the divine. And, mm. and you know, expressing my mystical longing for union, um, poking fun at society, uh, you know, you know, uh, at at how you know at how materialistic people are. Um, you know, at the staunchly patriarchy, uh, so, so in, in patriarchal nature of society. So all of these things somehow, you know, uh, you know, comparing them or rather contrasting them them to the fact that you know all of this is perishable. It really amounts to nothing, and the only thing we are left with is our is our connection to the divine. I think that's what I'd be doing. And and, and Michael, may I add that from the nineteen nineties from the nineteen nineties mm-hmm. onwards, this is, you know, when I was um uh, I came to Canada as a PhD student at the University of Toronto, I subscribed to this magazine called, you know, Dionysus. Like, you know, Dion and I had this vision of that I think in the days to come Poets will be, you know, walking around with musical instruments and singing their poems. That, mm. I, I mean, I would love to do this in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you, would you go to jail if you did it? <laughs> we don't want you in jail. <laughs> You're out singing your poems. <laughs> Accessibility, all right? 
the question is, how hard should you work to solve a poem? I would say let it flow through you, you know, and jot it down or type it out and make the edits, you know, up to a certain point until you feel it all falls into place you know, the sound and sense make sense. And then just let it go and, you know, go on to the next one. Don't, or or if you feel that there's something uh, jarring about it, then just, you know, put it aside or dump it. (laughs) (laughs) So when you're writing, do you want (laughs) your audience to understand your work, or is this primarily you're venting your work? So, so you said, do I want my audience to understand my work, or so, uh, yes, yes, or is it? Uh, <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> you've got me asking all kinds of questions tonight. All right, <laughs> are you writing for yourself, or are you writing for others? Oh, um, definitely I'm writing for myself. And Mm -hmm. if others are able to resonate with it, connect to it, appreciate it, that's great. If not, that's okay, too. That's okay, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Share another poem. All right, let me, let me be quiet. Share another okay. poem. <laughs> uh, okay, Michael, this is the kind of poem I would probably, as, you know, a kind of, um, you know, a mystical poet walking the streets of Tecoronto, uh, mm-hmm. would be singing. It's called Sap is My Heritage. Now, I wrote this in a kind of state of um, trance without changing a full stop or comma. It has no commas, by the way. Um, I, I, I call this a 1994 poem after my awakening. So this is it. Sap is my heritage. Things that cannot be seen belong to me. Ether of invisibility takes me closer to you, Lord. The gap between the high roof of your church and I is the ladder of flame that lifts the ash I call my body. I am what the tree cannot contain and therefore exudes, touched by the fragrant air. I harden into being, slowly dying. I am only a possibility. Finally, round and bulbous and unbreathing, I come to be. Sap Mm. is my heritage. Sap is your heritage, wow. Do you think you were meant to be a poet, Ashna? Absolutely. I Tell think me if I think that if you were to take the poet out of Archana, I would be nothing. You know, I am, mm-hmm. for example, um, the rest are, you know, roles which I'm playing in society, like daughter, you know, stepmother, um, wife. Um, sister, etc. But the deepest is that of a poet. 
and 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 when I say deepest, because my poetry, I view it as a vehicle to connect to the divine. Therefore, if you know, if Archana is not a poet, she's nothing. Wow. <laughs> All right. I mean, what surprises you most about being a poet? Actually, your, your voice got cut there. So what? Um, what, su- what surprises you the most oh, about okay. being a poet? Surprises me. Um, nothing. I'm not surprised at all. I am totally in my element in being a poet. Wow. Totally in your element. So as you think about your writing, has a poem that you've written ever frightened or humbled you? Um, yes, it has. Um, and that is such a wonderful question. It's almost as if writing a poem, you know, it's like producing an alien creature. It, 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 it's, it's almost as if it's something which comes out of you, but is not you. Yes, um, the, the poem, which the first poem I read out in the show, First Fire, it, it shocked me. It turned me inside out. Um, and there are other poems like that too like I, I, for example I wrote a ten and a half page poem in one sitting again during 1994 which is called The Tale of a Demonic Woman oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. now that's the title <laughs> and um, and, you know, my, my Michael, in that poem, it's all about my rebellion against God. You know, it's, it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a kind of battle between God and the devil. And, you know, the devil mm-hmm. is on the side of a de- the demonic woman, Archana. So, I, you know, I'm a character in that poem. And I am, I am um, uh, you know, a victim of, um, you know, a, a kind of metaphysical deception orchestrated by God. Wow. So, wow. and and I have to seek my own salvation through love. Uh, that's mm. what the poem is about. You know that the title of that particular piece is extremely powerful. How important is the title in a poem? I think the title in a poem can be important um, and is important because it it creates an expectation in the mind of the reader. Uh, it's important for the poet because, <clears throat> you know, it condenses, right, the theme in the mind of the poet. But I'm also aware that a lot of poems are not titled by poets and and I know you laugh. I know you laugh when I say this, but that's okay too. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know me. I'll laugh anyway. So it's <laughs> just a given. Know, I'll laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Michael, that's okay too because that's why you have you know uh, you have an index of first line, right? Without you know when poems don't have titles, so 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 that mm-hmm. shows that poems can be appreciated without titles too. That is true. Mm-hmm. 
So in another Nirvana, are many of your poems untitled? No, they all have titles. They all have titles. Mm-hmm. Mm, very nice. Let's take a brief break, Arshna. <laughs> sure. And we'll be right back. <laughs> sure. See you soon. back. I am here with Ashna Sani. Ashna, question for you. Mm-hmm. All right. The themes that you write about, some of them are very challenging to think about, and some of them are quite heavy in terms of, it's just heavy themes to me. Does writing energize or exhaust you? That's my question. I think writing poetry energizes me and completes me. It it also shows me the way forward on my journey, you know. Mm. Mhm. Tell me more. <laughs> Give me a little more. Um I, I've never thought of writing poetry as exhausting because I do not have like a set routine. You know, I once met a poet, I mean, just to contrast it, but I, I mean, just to explain what I'm saying, I met a mm-hmm. poet, I won't name him. He has a schedule. He gets up in the morning and he writes a poem. He makes it a point to write a poem and he's very prolific. He's published lots of collections and, you know, edited anthologies and, you know, so forth. But, I don't think that I could ever do that because I only write when I'm compelled. Uh, so I think if there's an inner compulsion, there's there's not going to be any exhaustion. If I force myself, if I, you know, if I labor mm-hmm. over poetry, that's when the exhaustion would, would set in. Hmm. You know, it's funny. That was going to be my next question to you. What moves you to write a poem? What is the core impulse for you? Mm-hmm. Is it just life? Life moves you? The vicissitudes um, of life? I I think so. It is that, but also um, there's something more. There's some kind of, I feel that I've been propelled Mm-hmm. Uh, in the direction of a quest, you know, there's this quest. So there's this uh, consistent thread in my life, you know, which manifests as poetry. So I'm in quest of, um, you know, myself. I'm in quest of love. You know, I'm in quest of truth. So I think that is something which, uh, you know, you know, that is the impulse, I think. 
uh, behind my poetry. I asked this particular question of my guest on Monday evening. To what extent precisely is any poem a woman's or a man's? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Um, I think a poem is a man's or a woman's, you know, belongs to a man or a woman to the extent that it to the extent that it is reflected in the poem mm-hmm. by markers of uh, gender and sexuality and All rules, right. but but I but I think even even if those even if a poem has those markers, it can also go beyond that if it's trying to convey something beyond you know, beyond gender and social rules. So, mm-hmm. so that's my response. I mean, for, for example, I would take the poem I wrote, The Tale of a Demonic Woman. I talk about uh, my rebellion against patriarchy, but I'm not so much concerned with society, but mm-hmm. with, you know, it's a metaphysical rebellion. I'm talking about the nature of suffering. I recognize that both the sexes or genders suffer but in their own way. As a man, you write about divine femininity. Could I embrace divine femininity in my work? Or that would be foreign to me, and there's no way I could do that? I think as a man, you can embrace divine femininity by first... um, by first embracing the femininity within yourself because mm. we are all you know both the masculine and the feminine exist in both men and women yes. uh, so w- w- once you have embraced or identified uh, your 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 feminine side and you're comfortable with it the next step is you know the divine feminine uh, for example a man there, there are a lot of uh, saint poets in India, who in their poetry take on the role of a child. So, so a man could um, revere the divine feminine as a child would revere his mother. So, so, so it becomes a mother-child relationship. Whereas for a woman, I can directly, the connection is deeper, that I can embody the divine feminine because there's a match of the gender, the, the same gender. Wow. We could talk all night. Give me another poem. <laughs> oh, give me another poem. <laughs> oh, you are incredible. <laughs> give me another poem. flatter me, so. Okay, uh, Michael, um, okay, I'll tell you, you know, you talked about suffering, so I'm going to read out this poem called Art, Art, which is in a way my statement on, um, you know, the, you know, on creativity, especially when it comes to poetry, right? You know, you know what poetry uh, emerges out of. So this is my take on it. A pink lotus struggles out from its burden of mud, art, but we see only the lotus. 
the beauty of art, there is no such thing. Hurled out of a void, chaos hastening towards form. Art is an outcast's dream of fame, a love lost in one, finding love in all. A man with a pen or guitar playing at God. Mouth choking on blood, legs mysteriously giving way. I wrote my best lines, finally had the longed-for beatific vision. But was it worth it? Can I unearth the time and blood gone into the earth? What can dignify such devastation masquerading as the workings of Muse Saraswati inner eye? The beauty of art? There is no such thing. Art is crucified desire resurrecting. Art is life not quite dying. Art is the beauty of conflict transmuting into the cruelty of art. Thank you. Wow. Arshan, there's so much synchronicity tonight. Because my question was going to be to you, what are you attempting to communicate with your art? I'm attempting to communicate the manner in which I have experienced life, fathomed Mm -hmm. love, and, and, you know, the sense of the you know, ineffable, something which cannot be put into words, but mm-hmm. but I think poetry comes closest to doing that. It's it's a contradiction and it's ironic that I think only poetry is able to convey what cannot be conveyed in words. You know, it's and that's why it's probably the closest to music. And Michael, um, I did set one of my poems called "The Drum" in Toronto mm-hmm. when I lived here. You know, I'm, I'm I'm visiting Toronto right now from where I'm talking. Um, but in 2010, I set this long poem called The Drum to Music to the Jimbe, and um, it was appreciated. So, so I feel increasingly that these are the themes I want to express through my poems, and eventually I will have to combine. I'm compelled to set my poems to music in the future. Wow, very nice. I look forward to that. You know, this is a calling show, and we have a caller on the line. I'd like to bring this person on. Maybe they'd like to share something. Sometimes people just want to stay silent. But let's see. All right? Are you ready? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. The first three numbers are 416-800. You're on the air with Archna. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Yes. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I yes. can. Hi. Okay. Hi. My name is Melissa. I'm, I'm sorry, your voice got cut. Say that, say that one more time, yes. My name is Melissa. Oh, hi, Melissa. All right. Yeah, I was hoping I'd be on your show because 
I've been writing poetry for a very long time. I started when I was about 13. I self-published a poetry book called Emotions, and I like to share my favorite poem, a poem that I, I that inspires that I out it's totally out of blue. You want to hear it? Why not? Please share your favorite poem. Yeah, sure. Okay, it goes. The power of the mind is so fragile, it can be broken so easily. The power of the mind is so mysterious, the curiosity from others want to get inside. The power of the mind is so distinctive, no mind is the same. The power of the mind is so profound, one only knows the one's thinking. The power of the mind will lay wickedly on the ground is the power of the mind deteriorates in the non-existent form. Very nice. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Melissa. Yes. How much time do you have? <laughs> I could go on forever at all the poems I have. <laughs> well, what um, I'd like you to do is to email me at my email address, and then we can talk about you being a guest on the show. How's that sound? Okay, um, I have a pen. I don't know if it works. Um, All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you ready? Paper. Um, I think so. Oh, All right. Wait. Okay. Okay. Hi. Okay, you ready? <laughs> you ready, Melissa? Yeah. Okay. It's M. I. M I N Yes G R A M Yeah M I N G R A M Oh shoot Hold on Um I'm trying to get what you're saying M I N Yes, that's correct. Yes. M I N, yeah. G, isn't George? G. R A M. M I N G. R A M. R A M as in Mary. As in Mary, yes. At, at G M. X.com. At gmail.com? No, gmx. gmx.com. Yes. All right. All right. Uh, thank you so much for calling in. So email me, all right? M I N G R A M at gmx.com. That's it. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for calling in. That's fantastic. All right. All right. You're more than welcome. All right. All right. Archna, we are back. Yes, my God. Yes. We have time for one more poem. Please favor us. Okay. Um... 
Oh, I have to quickly. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Just. Um, okay. So this one is called Immigration Take Two. Um, consider this opening your eyes one morning to find parrots on mango trees replaced by snow on pine. The yelling of a street hawker silenced by the white noise of a washing machine. People think an immigrant's past is dead. Friend, your past is no less a memory than mine. My so-called past is simply another place. The native land still exists in another time zone, rotating around our same solar system, offering the temptation of a mooring till the new land is home. Immigration, a cremation ground you frequent in your memories to witness your own death. Arrival is a resurrection, a living body rearranging the geography of its veins and the pathways of the heart, spreading itself thin as paper for wind and snow to script. Thank you. Wow. Where can listeners find your work, Arshna? Where can they find your work? Um, they can find my work um, in my second collection of poems called Another Nirvana. And the first collection, unfortunately, is out of print. They can also find it if they Google my name, Arshna Sahani, and uh, my work will come up on various websites. All right. How can listeners stay in touch? Um, in the bio note, um, uh, you know, in your podcast, it gives my email mm-hmm. as archanadocuments at gmail.com. So that is A-R-C-H-N-A documents at, at right. the rate of gmail.com. So that's the best way to stay in touch with me. Um, All right. You know, what's, mm-hmm. what's next for you? Where's, where do you go from here? Um. Michael, from here, I see myself, I envision myself as a performing artist, performing Mm -hmm. my long poems on stage to music and dance. So music dance set to, um, you know, the long, especially the long poems, but also turning my long poems into a stage script. So this is where... Yeah, this is where I see myself. You know, oh, this is so funny. <laughs> Ed, interviewing you, for whatever reason, and you just made a statement about your poem being a stage play, all evening I felt like I was interviewing a movie star. <laughs> That's why I was so giddy. <laughs> oh, my so if you if you want to take your poems on the stage as an actress, that's against synchronicity to the a thousandth degree. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's, oh my oh. God. <laughs> I really did. Michael, Michael, you flatter me. <laughs> I really, really did. <laughs> you know, I learned so much. 
I was like, wow. <laughs> so I want to <laughs> I want to thank you <laughs> for sharing your spotlight with us. <laughs> and Michael well, yes. I am I I am honored to be on the show and I really appreciate this gesture and I just love your infectious laughter. I just I just <laughs> love it. And and also your you know, the nature of your questions, they they just you know it's your questions which opened up the discussion and you know, uh you know, allowed me to share aspects of my life and work. So um, thank you, Michael. And um, well, um, my, my you're a movie star. You're a movie star. You're a movie star. That's all I can say. That's all I can say. Would you allow this movie star just thirty seconds? You see, um, I lost the. You know, I I, I had the land acknowledgement for Toronto written. Uh, would you mind? I just. Uh, read that out because no, no, it's no. important yes, to me. Yes, please, please. So, um, yes, so, please. I, so the land I'm speaking from today, Takaranto, is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Benda peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also mm-hmm. acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. So um, I, I must also add that I am especially very grateful to this land called Tecoronto because this is where my awakening took place. So it's imprinted on my heart. I can never, never. Toronto is my true spiritual home and also mm. my poetic home. And I am absolutely thrilled, Michael, to be reading my poems and talking to you from Tecoronto. Fantastic. Fantastic. And if you prefer to prefer to call yourself a poetry star as opposed to a movie star, <laughs> whatever you want to do. All right, I want to thank you again, Arshna, <laughs> for being with me. You're invited back anytime. Anytime you're welcome back. You're an incredible your voice is incredible. What you're sharing with the world needs to be shared. And I want to thank you. All right, good people. We made it through another one. <laughs> I want to thank you as always for tuning in. And as I share every, every week, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Arshna. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure and my honor. Yes. (laughs) Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.